You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, Bluffing, Part 3, Post-Flop. Hey Dell, how's it going this week? It's going well right now. I'm starting to feel better getting over my illness and uh, looking forward to crushing souls on, online this week. How are you doing? Sounds good. You definitely sound better. I'm glad you and Terry are both on the mend. You were pretty sick last week, so you sound a lot better this week. Good. This week's been pretty busy for me. I have a lot going on. My 13-year-old son consistently says, Dad, you have too much going on, and I'm starting to believe him. I got crypto investment, real estate's on the back burner, my job, but I also have poker, studying poker, playing this podcast. I'm not giving any of that up, but I also am developing two apps, and I developed an idea for a course that I could create. And I started working towards creating this course, like creating an outline and understanding what the modules might look like and coming up with some content that I could have to facilitate the course. That's a lot. And frankly, it might be too much because it's probably trickling into my subconscious when I'm at the poker table, so I'm not giving 100% focus to my game. The ironic thing is that one of the apps I'm creating, this priority to action Google Sheet about a month ago, and we put on a website for people to use. And I need to use that sheet again to figure out what the heck my priorities are because I'm doing too much and I need to cut st- some of it out. So until I can cut some of that stuff out, I'm still going to be focused on too much. I don't have enough time. And so, yeah, that's that's my week. It is crazy and I need to start paring things down. Wow. If ever I feel like I'm doing a little too much and getting a little too much done... All I got to do is listen to you. And once again, I feel lazy. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anyone has ever accused me of being lazy. Anyway, one thing that I need to work on is bluffing. And that's the topic of our series here. We're now in the third part of our possibly four-part mini-series on bluffing. And now we're getting to the flop. So now it's getting interesting. and It's getting to be actual bluffing. Our previous two episodes were about pre-flop. And it wasn't so much bluffing. It almost was a misnomer. It's more like well-constructed ranges and expanding our three-bet ranges and including some of those non-value high potential holdings into our ranges. But now we're actually getting into the meat of it and we're going to talk about lying to our opponents. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. You know, it's wonderful. Poker is that one place in the world where we're encouraged to lie. Well, and politics. This is true. You know, the thing about it is that On the flop, there's so many different lines we can take. It's literally the most complex spot in all of No Limit Hold'em. It comes on the flop because there's so many choices. There's so many options. Picking the right one, the the most plus EV line is difficult. I mean, you know, sometimes we're going to be pushing for more value. Sometimes we're going to be hoping to just get to showdown. Sometimes we're going to be giving up. But a large portion of the time, we're going to be bluffing, right? The thing is, is that There's just one of the problems is most players just don't seem to know what makes a good bluff. They don't know how to construct it. They don't know what goes into it. They don't know how to tell a believable story. So what does actually make a good bluff when we're talking about flop play? And and a lot of people are going to talk about blockers and anti-blockers. And those become more important on the turn in the river. Here on the flop, 
one of the biggest things that determines whether we're going to be able to start bluffing and pull off good bluffs is going to be board texture and how that board texture interacts not with our hands specifically, but with our ranges. This year's where we we begin to tell that whole bluffing story. Yeah, some of it ties back to pre-flop, but this is where we get to say if we have seven six, but we had we're the pre-flop aggressor and it's an all high board. Well, this is when we get to say no, no, I actually had aces. This is when we get to play that game and start to look for some value spots to, you know, to get some of our hands to to overrealize their value. You mentioned the flop is so complex because of how it interacts with our ranges, but it also interacts with the ranges of our opponents. And we need to take that into consideration as well, because if we're going to tell a credible story that we want our opponent to believe, we have to tell them a story that says, hey, you know what? I hit this board better than you did. And I know you didn't hit this board because I know your ranges are XYZ and they don't include what the flop says. And I remember talking to Steve Catterson at School of Cards probably two years ago, and I think he gave me credit for coining this phrase, the art of poker, A-R-T, actions influence ranges that interact with textures. I would like to think I coined that phrase. I know Steve follows us on Twitter. I know he will comment on us if we don't get it right. So I'm expecting to see something from at Ship Extractor in Twitter. But really, it does come down to how our ranges and our opponent's ranges interact with the flop. And this is why we're allowed to see bet on flops that heavily influence or should interact with our range. And why we're not supposed to see bet that often on boards that interact more strongly with our opponent's range. And furthermore, this also determines our bet sizing. Because if we're betting more often, because we will be betting more often on boards that influence or interact with our range, we want to bet a smaller amount. Part of that is to keep weaker hands in, but also part of that is to pay less for our bluffing potential. We could very well be bluffing on the C-bet, and because we're going to be betting a small amount with our value hands, we also want to be betting that same small amount with our bluffing hands. And this is kind of tricky because we had done an entire series on bet sizing, like when to bet, how to bet, why to bet, But we had done this entire series on betting, but most of our perspective in that series was value-based. This is the other side of that coin. Pretty much value-seeking and bluff potential are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's one of the things that people miss. Like, If the flop comes out in a way that there's no way your range hit that flop, bluffing makes no sense. So for example, if you three bet a linear range pre-flop, everybody knows now that you're not going to have ace five suited in that linear range. Everybody knows that you probably don't have seven six in there. You don't have four or five in there. Probably don't have jack nine in there. Those aren't in your your range. So if the board comes out and it comes out all low and coordinated, bluffing on that board makes no sense. And I think this is one of the things that people fail at because they're so convinced that they're supposed to to see bet all the time that they have to see bet or they might get or or the other person might bet and they might have to fold their hand. Well, on a board like that, it's not necessarily a bad thing to fold your hand. This is one of the things that if you really want to take and start making it a poker, you really need to adjust the, the thinking behind it. It's not a bad thing to fold. 
There are times when it's a bad thing, but the overall thing is generally there's time you're supposed to fold because it just doesn't work for you. People continue to try and bluff on boards that make no sense to, to bluff on. So just to make it real clear, if you're the preflop aggressor and you've got a very static board, the person who's ahead now is likely going to be ahead on the river. This is a good board to be bluffing if you're the preflop aggressor. It's going to always be a good board to be bluffing. And that's what BJ was talking about earlier when he said you can bet small. You can bet small because you probably are going to continuation bet close to 100% on those boards. But there's going to be times when you're better off betting larger because you're not going to be hitting that board that often. Different parts of your range are going to hit it. You cannot bluff if there's no way you had a value hand on that flop. Now, that's very different, and, and I actually, BJ and I were talking beforehand about the difference between bluffing and pushing somebody off a hand. And I didn't really think I wanted to bring up pushing people off a hand, but I want to say that's very different. It's not that you can't push somebody off a hand if they're a real bad player and they're going to fold to the right bet size, but we're talking about bluffing, not pushing somebody off a hand, and you just can't bluff if you don't have a value hand from your range that hits that flop. In politics... And in life in general, the best lie always has a kernel of some truth. At the poker table, the best bluffs always have some kernel of value. I mean, if I'm three betting aces and the flop is 653 rainbow, my opponent knows there is no way in the world I connected with that flop. So why am I betting? As soon as I bet, they're thinking there's no way BJ ever hit that flop. I'm going to take him to value town myself and I'm going to turn the tables on him. And I just put myself in a world of hurt because my lie had no semblance in reality whatsoever. So if we want our bluffs to get through, oh, and by the way, not all your bluffs are going to get through. And if you're not getting called when you're bluffing, you're probably not bluffing enough. They're going to call you sometimes and that's fine. Your bluffs don't need to work all the time. And we'll talk about that more on the river when we get to like minimum defense frequency and how that can inform your bluffing frequencies. But on the flop, we still need to construct our bluffs with some semblance of truth. We need to make this story credible. So how do we do that? I mean, what solutions can we offer our listeners to make sure that their bluffs are more credible? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways we can look at bluffing here. And when we're on the flop and we're looking at this, blockers play a part, anti-blockers play a part, but not as much as they're going to on the turn in the river. So definitely the, the actual flop texture plays the most. But we can start to look at it because we have to make a plan. When, if we're going to bluff now, here's one of the biggest problems we see when we watch bad players trying to bluff is that they have no plan for what to do if they get called. They have no plan. They have no idea if the bluff that they're doing is going to be a one and done, it's going to be a flop turn bluff, or if it's going to be all three barrels. And the thing is, the time to make that decision is here on the flop. And there are hands that it makes sense to go three barrels with. And there are hands that it makes sense to be one and done with. And a perfect example is if, if you have a flop where you have a high card and the board is paired, and you can probably take and bet that 100% of the time. But if you get called, it's so hard for the pre-flop caller to have hit that board. So if they call you, they've got something. That might be a good time to be one and done. Or if not one and done, maybe it's a flop in the turn because some people are going to call those with, with a strong ace, thinking that maybe ace high is good there. 
But is it really a three-barrel hand? No, it's not a three-barrel hand. But then you can take something like flop that gives you a lot of equity. You have something like ace of hearts, queen of clubs, and there's two hearts on the board. You know that you've just blocked all the ace, x of hearts that your opponent can have. And if another heart comes on the turn, what are you going to do there? Well, you still now you have a ton of equity, right? And you need to make that plan. There are certain hands. Another heart comes, I'm going to plan on three barreling. Another heart doesn't come, I'm going to take in maybe take a, a small shot on the turn and be done. But you need to make that plan now and start telling that story. So what makes a good story? Well, what makes a good story is when you can combine proper bet sizing with flop texture and your range, and it's believable. And what I mean is this, right? If you make all your bluffs less than what you make your value hands, nobody's going to believe it. If you make your value hands more than all your bluffs, then it's going to make it obvious when you're bluffing. When you have a texture that doesn't hit your range, it's pretty obvious you're bluffing. So you need to combine all those. Board texture, your range, and bet sizing to tell a proper story. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You don't want to change how you approach your bluffs to how you approach your value. Because if your opponent notices that you play differently when you're bluffing because you bet smaller all the time, they're going to realize you're bluffing. You want your bluff stories to be the same as your value stories. That's why you want the lie to have a kernel of truth. You want this bluff to look like value. And Dell mentioned on some flops, you could see bet almost 100%. And I want to get to that point of playing your bluff hands like their value hands. If you have a, a static flop that comes ace, six, deuce, rainbow, and your opponent knows you have all the strongest aces in your range, you have all the strong over pairs to the six and deuce, you know, you have like jacks through whatever, you're going to be betting your value hands almost all the time. And almost half the deck could give you a value hand. That means almost half the deck could give you a credible bluff hand. So you might as well bet the whole deck. You might as well see about 100. Do it at a high frequency. Do it for a small amount because it's going to get through a lot of the time. That's the converse of what we mentioned earlier, where if your opponent knows you never show up to this flop with any of your value hands, there's no way this flop hit any of your range, you have zero value hands available to you. That means you have zero bluffing opportunities available to you. So when you're looking at, can I construct a bluff? Think to yourself, how many value hands in my range do I have? That number is how many bluffing combos you could represent as part of your range. A tool you can use to construct a well-executed bluff is by understanding how many value combos you have in your range that interacts with this texture, and, and then figure out the same number of combos that you could execute as a bluff because you want your opponent to be ambivalent between calling and folding. And if they're going to be ambivalent between calling and folding, you want to be pretty much ambivalent between value and bluffing. Does, does that make sense, Del? I mean, you kind of, okay, now this is an audio podcast. Y'all can't see this. Del's making a squirmy face at me. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I think that sometimes that there can be a misunderstanding of what we're really trying to reach. So yeah, when we, we want to take and always be creating an advantage for ourselves. So like when we're thinking about GTO lines and we're talking about bluffing from the thought of GTO, then absolutely we're looking for that equilibrium in our opponent. We want them to not be able to take 
and really be able to profit whether they call or fold. But that's not what we're doing in real life. What we're doing in real life is we are looking at something. So yes, we want a well-crafted bluff, right? And there are some hands we can bluff all the time, 100%. The reason we can do that is we expect our opponents to overfold. We do not want our opponents at equilibrium. We want them making the wrong decision. Overfolding is a wrong decision, right? If we have a player that overcalls, we're not bluffing them. All right, we're not bluffing a player that overcalls. All right, we are always going to take and value bet them. So let's take a per, an example, and I'm going to make an extreme example just to make a point. We're going to hit the flop approximately 33% of the time. We're going to hit it a little more than that on some ranges, a little less on others, but right around, you can expect one third of the time you're going to hit the flop. Our opponent should be calling, if that's true, if it were perfect numbers, and it's not. Please understand, we're saying if it was perfect numbers, our opponent should be calling 66% of the time, right? If our opponent folds to 90% of our bets, we should be bluffing our opponent 100% of the time. And this is why, like a static board, we can do that because they're going to overfold there. And it's because the, they have a lack of equity on that board. So, no, we're, we're not trying to maintain equilibrium. Now, let's say we have just the opposite, right, where that player only takes in folds 25% of the time. Well, then we're never bluffing them. What we're doing is we're going to make sure that when we bet with them, it's a value hand. And that happens on some boards. Like there are some boards that are going to come out that we can really expect that our, our opponent's going to be able to continue because of the dynamic nature of the board. It's highly connected. It's highly suited. We can expect that we can get a lot of continuations from our opponent. We're going to bet significantly less. So we're not looking for equilibrium here, okay? What we're looking for is to take advantage of flop texture that leads to our opponents either overfolding or underfolding and taking that advantage. Now, that's a starting point, all right? As you sit down at the table, you can start with that point against any player. But if a player shows that they're willing to fold too much, then you can do it on a lot of different flops. It's not the starting point. The starting point is we're going to make sure all our bluffs are good. All our bluffs are based on timing them with board texture that is going to lead to our opponents overfolding. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. And it harkens back to our episode on GTO and exploitative play. It wasn't a but or, it was a yes and. You know. So yeah, to my point, you want to make the perfect opponent ambivalent between calling and folding. So you want to have the right, you want to have the equitable distribution of value and bluffing hands. That's great as a starting point. And then once you understand your player profiles, you can adjust that accordingly. And if you happen to know the population tendencies of your local card room, you can make some defaults right there. I know at my typical casino, everybody overfolds on the flop. All right, I'm going to adjust accordingly and I'm going to bluff more often than equilibrium would dictate. That's perfect. I think that's great. And that's another tool. I got to, I got to say, as we do these podcasts, I become more and more enlightened with just how much information I should be paying attention to about my opponents. Most people don't pay attention to their opponents at all. They're looking at their phones, they're watching ESPN, they're watching Netflix, they're whatever, it doesn't matter. When you're not in the hand, stay in the hand. And this is why. 
You want to understand what ranges your opponents play. You want to understand their tendencies. Do they overfold? Do they overcall? What do they do? Because you want to find ways to exploit these players when you're in a hand against them. And if you're not paying attention, you're not going to see that. And this is just one more example of a data point. You can log into your mental book on what opponent A, B, and C are like. So that's huge. I mean, there's a lot to pay attention to. This is a complex game. Yeah. I want to bring this up since we mentioned GTO. And believe me when I say that I believe that exploitative play is a subset of GTO. I've been saying this for a while. I still have people who still want to argue exploitative play versus GTO. And to me, it's a subset. One is a subset of the other. And it is exploitative play that is the subset because you can sit down with sound GTO principles and start playing and make money and then identify the exploitative play. But if we're talking about GTO principles, one of the things to understand is that there are going to be some hands that you're not going to want to take and bluff with, and you're not going to want to bet as value either. And it's very important that we don't turn them hands into a bluff without a good reason. What I'm really trying to say, and everybody has to take and do this study. I, we do a 30-minute podcast, and in 30 minutes, nobody can give you all the freaking hands on every flop that would possibly need to be value or bluffs or showdown value type hands. But you're going to have some hands that are going to have not enough equity to be value, but too much to be bluffs. It's just like the podcast we had a couple of weeks ago where it was like the difference between showdown value and thin value. Don't turn those hands that have equity into bluffs without good reason. Now, I'm going to tell you, like, theoretically, if a, on a particular flop, your opponent should be calling 66% of the time, but they're, they're only calling 65% of the time, theoretically, you should be bluffing 100% of the time. I don't think that's the most plus EV in real life. But if that player is only calling 25% of the time, then by all means, bluff everything. Even those those hands that have equity do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a little anecdote, but I think it illustrates the point. In yesterday's session, I, I noticed that whenever I was in the cutoff, the button and the two blinds would fold almost 100%. And it was ridiculous. Like the button, I don't know what this person was doing. They're in position. They should be opening wider. But for some reason, this person was the knit of all knits, like the uber knit, and would just fold everything. And the blinds were completely passive. So I knew every single time I was in the cutoff and it folded to me, not limp, not open raise, but it folded to me, I could open raise any two cards. I did this with 10 deuce of diamonds. I did this with, I'm not kidding. I did this with Jack three offsuit and they folded. I got the button to fold and the two blinds to fold. And I was at two five. I made $7 at a pop. I made like $35 in the session just by playing absolute trash in the cutoff because I realized they were over folding to the tune of like a hundred percent. So yeah, to illustrate Dell's point, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I think that gets us to the tools. I mean, we've talked about paying attention to the players. We've paid attention to ranges and you need to hand read. You need to get good at hand reading. You want to understand how the preflop action informs your ranges and how those ranges carry to the flop, how your range interacts with the board 
and how your opponent's range interacts with the board because you're going to need to ask yourself, how many value hands do I have against this flop? How many value hands do they have against this flop? And what hands in my range would make good bluffing candidates given my opponent's likely continuance range? That's one part. And then you can go further because Dell mentioned you want to have a plan. What cards would likely come on the turn that would bring me value? Like if you're, if you're betting your bluffs, you have an open-ended straight draw and your straight comes in the turn, that's great. Now you have value. What cards could come on the turn that would make you want to continue with another barrel of bluffing? Would an ace make it happen? Would a king make it happen? Maybe you want low cards. Maybe you want deuce through six. If a deuce through six comes, I'm going to fire another barrel because we need to figure out how many streets of fake value our bluff can get. Is it a one street bluff? Is it a two street bluff or what? This is all work we need to do off table. And I'm going to be honest, it's not easy. Yeah, you did a lot of this work off table, haven't you? I did. I did. I shouldn't say it's not easy. It's tedious and it takes a lot of mental energy. It's not hard to do. You spread a flop either on the table or you spread a flop using Flopzilla or Equilab or whatever tool you want. And then you go through all the hands in what you think your range is, you should know your ranges by now, and what you think your opponent's range is, and then see how those ranges interact with that flop. The exercises aren't actually hard. I was, I misspoke when I said they're hard. They're difficult. There's a difference between something being easy and something being complicated. This is a relatively easy exercise, but it gets so deep and so complex when you start analyzing the stuff that it's deceptive. Okay. So I, I have a question. Could somebody do it for 15 minutes a day and, and get better at poker? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say, okay, first of all, let me make two points there. First of all, if you're doing something for 15 minutes a day, I will take consistency over anything else. If you're doing something for just 15 minutes a day, you are going to be worlds beyond anyone who does it sporadically. The second thing is once you start doing it for 15 minutes a day, you're going to get used to it. You're going to get in the habit of it, and 15 minutes could very easily turn into 30 or 45. And yeah, you will get better at it because you'll start to see common patterns. You will start to easily see, oh, wait, this type of flop favors my range. This type of flop favors my opponent's range. And here are the hands in my flop that I'm going to bet for value. And here's the hands in my range I'm going to lie to my opponent about and tell them I have value, which is essentially what we're calling a bluff. So I, I want to take, I, I know you said you're going to do these exercises again because you needed to do them again. So I want to, I want to change the language around it before I mention any more tools. I want you and our listeners, instead of thinking, this is tedious, I'd rather have this thought process going into this exercise. I am excited to spend 15 minutes doing this, knowing it's going to help me crush my game. Okay. You know what? I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to make a promise on the air. And Dell, I'm going to need your help to keep me accountable for this. And probably our followers on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. Check it out. The Blinds Healing the Blinds. Some of you already listened to it. And that's great. I'm going to do a hand reading exercise every day for the next two weeks. Except not this weekend. I'm visiting family over President's Day weekend. So I'm going to start this on Monday, which is what, the 21st? Something like that. Okay, so starting Monday the 21st, I'm going to do a hand reading exercise and I'm going to post it on YouTube every day for two weeks. 
I'm good. This is what I'm going to do in the hand reading exercise. I'm going to spread out a flop on Flopzilla or whatever. I'm going to imagine my range pre-flop that carries through to the flop as well as a fake opponent's range. I'm going to identify what hands in that range I would take some actions on, like C-bet or check raise or check call or fold. And I will note which one of those are value hands and which of of those holdings are the fake value hands that are the bluffs. And we can show our listeners what it goes through. We can show our listeners what the process is. I think that's awesome. And I'm going to challenge you to do it in 20 minutes or less. Uh, the thing is on, on, on uh, Flopzilla Pro, you can do multiple ranges. So you don't even have to imagine. You can build the range real quick and go from there. So you, I challenge you to keep it under 20 minutes a day. Another tool for learning how to bluff, or really, this is going to help you build a range it's going to help you understand ranges. It's going to help you understand hand reading. And all that goes to taking and understanding when to bluff, how to bluff, what makes a good bluff, and, and constructing these lines for bluff. And that's going to be a good site, a good poker training site, or individual coaching, okay? So we've mentioned it a, about a million times that BJ and I are – students of School of Cards. We've both been through their cash game fix courses. I do study courses on their cash game fix course, and it was instrumental in changing our games and the way we look at it. There are a lot of sites out there, and we're not saying the others aren't good. This is one we're associated with. I've had some time doing Solve for Y courses. I haven't done a lot through them, but I've done some, and they're excellent. I've done Red Chip Poker also. And these are all excellent sites. This isn't to say others aren't. These are the ones I'm throwing out there because I have personal experience with them. But find yourself a site or a coach, or if nothing else, a good friend who's willing to talk over what makes a good bluff line in the hand histories. And that will help you so much, so much more than trying to do it on your own. All right. Sounds good. So at the beginning of this episode, I complained that I was doing too much and I'm taking on more. So I'm going to have to figure out something to drop. I think I'm going to have to temporarily drop one of the apps that I'm building and maybe an online course that I'm looking to develop. So those are going to go on the back burner because doing this hand reading exercise and this bluffing exercise for our listeners and our viewers is going to be paramount. It's going to take priority. So I'm going to do that. And I think we're going to be in good shape for next week when we talk about bluffing. Are we doing bluffing on the turn? Are we going through the river? Is this going to be a five-part series now? I really haven't decided yet. I think that it's very possible that next week could be the turn and river. There's a lot of similarities between them, and they're much simpler. If things start to, there's a lot of stuff we've already said in the last two episodes that are going to apply to the to the next episode. So I think that we can do the turn and river together, and I think that's what we'll do. So the next week will be part four of four of our bluffing miniseries. I'm looking forward to it. This has been great. Thanks as always, Dell. Yeah, it's been awesome, BJ. Thank you. And until next week, stick to the plan and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. 